Hello and welcome to this uh, sponsor e-briefing. I'm Caleb Brown, Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome you back to our live exclusive discussions between Cato staff and you, our Cato sponsors. For the rest of 2017, our e-briefings will focus on issues related to Cato's 40th anniversary, which we're celebrating this year. A lot has happened since Cato's founding in San Francisco in 1977, and we want to take this opportunity to uh, look back on all that Cato has accomplished, uh, examine the present, and most importantly, discuss the future of our vision for a free society over the next 40 years. I'd also like to invite all of you to visit our 40th anniversary webpage. Uh, linked below where we have lots of resources including a timeline of Cato's history and testimonials on Cato from policymakers, journalists, and leaders in the liberty movement. Today we are just talking with Peter Gettler. He's president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Peter succeeded John Allison at the helm of Cato in April of 2015 and uh, had been on the Cato Board of Directors prior to his appointment. He's held various uh, other leadership positions at Liberty Organizations uh, and on other nonprofit boards. Uh, a second career, which followed over 20 years on Wall Street as an investment banker, with time sent, spent at Solomon Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and Barclays Capital. Uh, Peter, welcome. Caleb, thanks for having me. And. Um, this also want to say welcome to uh, all our sponsors. We've had a time change. We're now doing this in the evening, hoping that more people can join us. So I hope that works out. Uh, the downside of doing this in the evening is uh, we've both got 7 o'clock shadow. Well, you have a beard now, so you don't have the <laughs> 7 o'clock shadow. But also, it was over 90 degrees in the literal and figurative swamp that we inhabit here in Washington, D.C. So if I little, look a little bit like uh, Richard Nixon in the De Kennedy-Nixon debate tonight, I'll let you be John Kennedy. Okay, that? well, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, so... Uh, this conversation will be driven mostly by your questions, so if you have a question uh, for uh, Cato President Peter Gettler, please enter it into the chat room, and we're going to get to as many of those questions as we can over the course of the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, but I will uh, begin with this. What began your involvement with the Cato Institute? It actually began when I was an undergraduate in, uh, in university. I was writing a paper on Social Security, the uh, unsustainability of Social Security. This is in the early 80s, 82, 83. And uh, some of the source material that I found in the library uh, was produced by Cato. In fact, the first book Cato ever published was by Peter Ferrara, and it was called uh, Social Security, The Inherent Contradiction. And that's when I learned about Cato. And then it was a good period of time, I guess, building a career. Uh, when you're young, you're not thinking so much about philanthropy, but I became increasingly aware of Cato. And then my family and I... Um, began supporting the Institute around 2000, 2001. And uh, over time, it became you know, our biggest philanthropic priority, um, mostly because we just made a decision as a family that you know, we wanted to prioritize our, char our charity and our philanthropy um, and focus it on the liberty movement because we felt that, that uh, a lot of the things that uh, reasons that people get involved in philanthropy kind of converge in, in the freedom movement. You're trying to uh, you know, roll back the state, trying to create um, a freedom for people to allow them to live their best lives, become more prosperous, uh, become economically mobile. And uh, it's kind of like the old uh, uh, adage, you know, give me a fish, I eat for a day, teach me to fish, I eat for a lifetime. And I think liberty 
um, really allows people to live their best lives, be prosperous. Uh, it allows us to experience the fulfillment and satisfaction that comes with meetings, life's challenges. And uh, I have to say, over many um, years, uh, the folks at Cato thanked me so much for my support, and it's a real pleasure in the two years that I've been at the Institute to have uh, met so many of our sponsors and uh, get to know many of them as friends, to welcome them here at the Institute at our events around the country, and to be able to thank you so much for, for your support and making you know, our critical work to, uh, to advance liberty and to uh, restore the promise of freedom and limited government that the founders of the United States gave to us. Okay, so you were involved in Cato. Cato becomes uh, your family's highest philanthropic uh, priority. How did your time on the board or uh, being asked to join the board, how did that lead to you becoming president? Well, it's a story I tell. I say that it was, I was going to, I was elected to the board. Six months later, I was attending my first board meeting. And they told me that the board meeting started at 9 o'clock. And when I showed up, it turns out it started at 8.30. And when I got there, they informed me that I had been elected president of Cato. That's actually not the truth. The truth is, um, you know, I've always uh, considered serving on a, on a nonprofit board to be an important commitment. So I began having conversations with John Allison telling him that I wanted to be an engaged and serious board member, but I also wanted to respect the boundaries that come with being a trustee or director of a nonprofit to kind of respect the boundary between um, stewardship as a board member and uh, operations and management. So I said to John, I really want to talk to you about how to be an effective board member, how to help you without encroaching in areas that really aren't appropriate for a director. And uh, about three months later, after I joined the board, John uh, was at, we, I was at a, attending a Cato event at the Waldorf in New York. And afterwards, John approached me and said, uh, putting my old, own words back at me, Peter, I have an idea to get you more engaged in <laughs> Cato. And next time you're in Washington, let's have breakfast or lunch. And we had breakfast a few months later. And uh, he asked me if I would consider succeeding him. Um, John had, uh, you know, come to Cato, uh, came out of retirement, didn't intend it to be a long-term career for him, and uh, was really looking for a long-term successor. So uh, the viewers of this program and people who are super consumers, and a lot of our sponsors truly are super consumers of Cato Institute materials, and I know you were before you became president, they know about the role of, of think tanks. But what is your view of the role of think tanks in Washington and specifically uh, of Cato within the larger role of, that think tanks perform? Sure. I think the reason that Cato became so important to, to me and my family is um, in understanding the way opinion changes and ultimately the way policy changes, um, you know, a lot of that comes from changing the point of view of uh, the people who help form opinion, academics, journalists, media, policymakers, uh, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that is really the sweet spot for where think tanks operate. I was also struck a few years ago when uh, Don Boudreau, who's uh, an economics professor at uh, George Mason University and writes the blog Cafe Hayek, he wrote a post talking specifically about Cato, but the role of think tanks more generally. And he likened our role to, uh, he talked about an, an iceberg. And he said an iceberg, part of it is above the water, but most of it is below the water. 
And he said that part above the water in a policy context is what he considered to be what was politically possible at any one time. And so uh, the edges, uh, you know, defined what was the most pro-liberty policy and the most anti-liberty policy. And he said at any particular point in time, you can only move things so far through the political process. And while that is important, that process is important to build lasting change and to really move our country in the direction of the free society in which we all want to live and more importantly, want our children and grandchildren to live. It took uh, people operating on the climate of ideas and trying to change, you know, the term is the debate. And his analogy was turning that iceberg to uh, be able to expose more parts of it in order to broaden what was politically feasible from the perspective of moving policy in a more liberty-friendly direction. And he said it was really the role of Cato and organizations like Cato to kind of move that iceberg, push it, and and turn it so that we expose other parts of it. And I think what's interesting when people talk about Cato's impact, that's really the way it's it's worked out. I mean, I think that uh, you know when Cato was for you mentioned in San Francisco in 1977, libertarianism was considered a fringe uh, political philosophy, which I've never understood because to me, libertarianism, classical liberalism is enshrined in our constitution. It really is a, a very great manifestation of our point of view and our philosophy. Um, but that philosophy has really moved from what was considered more fringe 40 years ago to being part of the mainstream and having a seat at the table in the policy debates and now having members of Congress who self-identify as libertarians. And I think that uh, one of the things I said at our 40th anniversary event a few weeks ago was that um, you know many individuals and many organizations are responsible for that? But I always considered, uh, as a sponsor and now as a staff member, Cato to be the MVP of uh, of mainstreaming libertarianism, and I think that's an important achievement for continuing to move things in the direction that we want. Um, I want to talk about impact a little bit, and uh, please pay attention to this clip because it's your boss, uh, Bob Levy. <laughs> Uh, Cato's chairman talking about... I want to keep him happy. You got to. um, Talking a little bit about uh, what he views as Cato's greatest achievements. Our most important and broadest impact has been to create a presence for libertarian ideas in Washington, D.C. Without Cato, there would be no wholly consistent voice on behalf of individual liberty uh, and liberty government. And thanks to our work, uh, journalists and policymakers understand that the ideas of the American Revolution are alive. We'll be talking about sort of keeping keeping the torch lit mm-hmm. on behalf of liberty, uh, but in terms of uh, making, well, for one, making our sponsors feel like they're contributing so- to something that is working. Uh, what does impact look like, and how do you go about measuring it? I think that, uh, first of all, I'd say I I obviously agree with Bob. Um, I think implicit in his comments were some of the things I said earlier that, um, you know, know, libertarianism, classical liberalism really is the philosophy that animated the founding of America. So keeping those values alive is something that drives our mission, you know, here here at Cato. And I think he also alluded to the mainstreaming of libertarianism, you know, important mission and important achievements. Um, it's interesting that we talk about impact now because 
Um, you know, I've only been here two years, but in the two years I've been here, there's never been a more exciting time for me to be at Cato. Um, there's a high level of energy in the building and an incredibly high level of engagement um, here in the Capitol, both in policy areas where, for example, we agree with the administration and where we're heavily involved. I think we've had undeniable impact on the health care debate in uh, financial regulation, you know, the bill that was passed by the House last week, the, the Financial Choice Act is something that uh, Chairman Henserling of the Financial Services Committee cites Cato as, and John Allison and Mark Calabria as being you know, very influential in. And at the same time, there are areas where on trade, for example, in, in immigration, um, where we are um, you know, at odds with the administration. Um, so Cato, I think, has a very unique role where, as we have played in previous administrations, um, both advancing policy in areas of agreement and trying to slow down the hand of the state in areas where we disagree. And, um, you know, I think that that um, the organization um, has had impact not on the broad and not only on the broad you know, philosophical debates and the climate of ideas, but in moving specific, you know, areas of policy, policy forward, as I talked about just now. Uh, if you have a question for Peter Gettler, CEO and President of the Cato Institute, please enter them into the chat room. We'll try to get to as many of those as we can. We have a question here. This is from David. Uh, one of my most pressing concerns is the attitudes that the younger generation has toward the role of big government. How can Cato reach out to start changing the minds of young people? That's a great question, David. Thanks, thanks for participating, and also thanks for the question. Something that's on the minds of many of our sponsors, and you know, many of us here at the institute. Um, it's an area where I think um, Cato has had and continues to have a you know a really big impact. Um, you know, Students for Liberty, which is the largest classical liberal. Um, student organization on campuses throughout the country uh, was actually incubated here uh, at Cato. Uh, the founder, Alexander McCobin, had interned at Cato, was given an office here, and I think that's because Ed Crane really saw, you know, the important need um, to bring, you know, our philosophy and to bring the message of liberty to uh, to young people and to uh, to students on on campuses. Um, the way I think about it is. Um, if the, or, if the Institute tries to do everything by itself, um, we're destined to fail. I see us as part of an ecosystem, and I think the creation of Students for Liberty was a recognition uh, of that. The fact that we can't necessarily, we don't necessarily have the capacity to be the, the retailers of these ideas on campuses, but we can be the wholesalers. And by helping to, uh, to create and help organizations that can actually be on campus, that can relate to millennials as fellow millennials uh, and can be the retailers of those ideas. That's a real powerful combination. I think that's where our focus is. Um, we got a very generous grant um, to establish the Dunn uh, Libertarian Leadership Program uh, two and a half, three years ago. Uh, we've deployed that to create resources online for students. We now have a suite of five courses. It's eventually going to be more than a dozen courses. Um, to teach young people, to try to fill what we feel are the important gaps, teaching them about liberty, um, teaching them about economics, because we think uh, one of the things I wrote about in my most recent bi-monthly memo is that our job advancing liberty is uh, easier if young people have 
um, and you know an appreciation for the economic way of, of thinking. We're going to have courses on the, the Constitution, on trade, and other issues. In fact, Caleb, I brought with me tonight the, uh, the latest book. Each of these is taken as a serious course, but in addition to online resources and the video lectures and resources, um, each course has an accompanying book. And uh, this was was uh, written by Howard Beecher. This is the latest course that's out on the foundational basics of economics. And the book is an introduction to, uh, to economics and free markets. It's a digestible but serious book uh, that can bring important elements of our message to, uh, to young people. We also welcomed, I don't want to go through all of the elements of our, uh, of our, our programs, but we just rec- welcomed two weeks ago our um, newest intern class, 35 really inspiring, really smart uh, and capable young people here. We had 40 applications for every slot in that program. All of the strong applications, we actually have camps where on a weekend we bring the students who applied and had a strong application but were not able to secure a slot. We bring them here to the institute on a weekend and we have a condensed version of the curriculum that our interns receive over their three months at the institute that we present to, uh, to these other candidates so that they can then go back to their campuses or to their job if they're young professionals and uh, you know, bring, um, have be, basically be better armed to, uh, to argue the merits of, uh, of classical liberalism and freedom and, and free markets. All right, thank you for the question, David. Uh, another question from a sponsor. Uh, constitutional rule has steadily eroded since the Wilson administration to the point that the U.S. government has become a rulemaking body unto itself and constitutional freedoms are rapidly being lost. Short of revolution, uh, can this be reversed? How, when, and by whom? Thanks. That's a, a great but uh, maybe sobering question. And uh, it actually brings to mind one of the other areas where Cato has had um, you know, a tremendous impact because if you remember the constitutional debates of the 60s and early 70s, you know, it was about judicial restraint versus judicial activism. And um, you know, conservatives argued for judicial restraint. And Roger Pallon and his team, when they established the Center for Constitutional Studies at Cato 30 years ago, were really instrumental in uh, developing what we call the third way, that you know, judicial restraint in the um, face of incursions on our constitutional liberties and the passing of unconstitutional laws by the legislature is, uh, is, can't be seen as a positive thing. And we really helped define uh, this third path of judicial engagement where we encourage judges to defend the Constitution and to uh, um, strike down unconstitutional laws that, um, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the deference to the, to the legislature and to the political branches in passing these laws to the extent they contravene the Constitution, um, you know, obviously wasn't going to uh, defend liberty, the rule of law, and, uh, and limited government. I think that's an area where we really have changed the, uh, the terms of the debate. Um, I think today the areas where we're probably most concerned are where uh, administration in and administration out, and regardless of which party controls the White House, there's been a tremendous growth in executive power. And I think that's where Cato's uh, critical role 
has has really shined because since we don't play on either the red team or the blue team, what I find it's very discouraging that um, you know Republicans will look the other way when a Republican administration is uh, expanding executive power in ways that contravene the Constitution. Democrats look the other way when Democratic administrations do that, and uh, you know we've really been willing to call out, uh, you know, call out both sides. Um, what I've tried to do is have a call to arms to encourage people that you know, the rule of law is really what has set the United States apart from the rest of the world for the you know the last two centuries, and if you allow that to be lost, um, it's very difficult to get back, and the consequences are are. Uh, um, you know, catastrophic. And so to try to encourage people to uh, not to look the other way, to be willing to recognize that uh, the deterioration in the rule of law, um, the erosion of our liberties has been a, bi- a bipartisan effort. And if people do play on the red team or blue team, they have to be willing to call out their team when they are contravening the rule of law. And both of the last administrations have been guilty of that. So um, I joke sometimes with friends of mine that the best way to get people to think uh, or to become a more libertarian, friendly uh, thinker is to loudly uh, yell at people and call them statists. Um, That's, of course, a joke. But how do you view the issue of libertarian purity? That is the idea that I am more libertarian than thou because I believe X, Y, and Z. Um, as someone who spent almost my whole life outside the liberty movement, that's something that I never understood, this parlor game of who's more libertarian. You know, you're not a real libertarian because you believe this, and I am because I believe something else. Um, to me, we should be widening the tent, and we should be, um, you know, let's let's uh, worry about having narrow debates when we're talking about which cabinet department to get rid of. Um, I just really think that it's counterproductive. I know uh, I was having lunch with Rand Paul a couple of months ago, and I know he's particularly irked by this because he gets a lot of uh, of heat from libertarians. And part of it is because I think he has kind of set up a high bar and taken libertarian positions. Uh, but his point was, hey, pick on Bernie Sanders, um, you know, for a while. And uh, um, I think that um, you know calling out politicians, even the ones that we agree with, often um, is pretty important. But I think we do have to keep some perspective and some some context on on what's important in moving our entire an entire movement um, ahead. The litmus test for for libertarians, the purity test, I don't think is is uh, you know entirely helpful. In I've regard. always thought it's interesting if there is a, an issue where some libertarians are divided on something. It's always struck me that Cato is the perfect venue to have a, a debate on that subject, to to allow the the sides to sort of make their case broadly to libertarians and the public, like using libertarian uh, principles. Mm-hmm. I can come to this conclusion and you come to this conclusion. Let's hash out what those what those actually look like. Right. And I think that can be pretty helpful as long as we don't let that take over, you know, the mission of what we're trying to do and let those, um, you know, debates uh, impede general and more meaningful progress towards a towards a free society. All right. Thank you for that. If you have uh, any questions for Cato President Peter Gettler, please enter them into the chat room. We're going to try to get to uh, as many of those as we can over the next uh, few minutes here. Um, how do you think think tanks are are changing? You know, we have 
some think tanks that have chosen some sort of different models in how they arrange them themselves, mm -hmm. and uh, some of those have proven to be less effective and some more effective. Where do you see the most useful innovation uh, that think tanks are maybe engaged in? Um, thanks for that question because it's something we've been spending a lot of time talking about, you know, here at Cato. Um, you know, I think that um, one of one of the uh, the ways that I've I've uh, presented this internally here at the institute is I've reminded people that we often are um, uh, making the arguments for free markets and the the, uh, the arguments that that markets have feedback loops, um, you know, stock price, P and L, market share, that engender very positive behaviors, creativity, innovation. Um, achievement, hard work, fulfilling a customer's need. And I think we need to remind ourselves that in a nonprofit, we don't have those feedback loops. And so I've been challenging people internally to ask themselves, you know, what kind of behaviors um, can develop to the extent you don't have those feedback loops? And things like that are resistance to change, you know, lack of creativity and innovation, um, you know, lack of, uh, you know, not being uh, imaginative in the way you grow and the way you invest your resources. And I think Cato has uh, has escaped that. I think it has been. You see what we do in, in digital media and outreach to young people and social media. Um, I think we've been very innovative. Um, but I think that uh, for most nonprofits, that's a real challenge. And so we've had a very um, healthy discussion over the last six to 12 months, really in the context of this 40th anniversary to think about um, what's our vision for the future? And um, a lot of that entails, uh, first of all, recognizing what the non-negotiables are. KO is effective and impactful because it has the adherence to principle and the commitment to nonpartisanship and independence um, that have really been hallmarks of the organization uh, since its founding. And I think those are so criti critical in making us making us credible and making us persuasive so that people know when we're saying something, it's what we truly believe. Uh, but at the same time, um, we have to recognize that there can be other ways to leverage, uh, leverage our work. I'm, we've particularly been talking about ways to use uh, technology or alternative uh, content uh, in order to uh, reach the audiences that uh, we influence more impactfully but also trying to find ways to leverage our work to, um, you know, at perhaps modest incremental investment, propagate our work to broader audiences and reach more of the, uh, basically get make more bang for the buck in terms of more mileage out of what we're already doing. And that's been the, uh, uh, that's been the focus. And it's been a very, uh, very encouraging discussion. And I uh, look forward to sharing more with our sponsors in the uh, in the months ahead, because I think we truly are developing a vision for the future to make Cato even more impactful than it's been in the past. All right, another question in the queue here. John G asks, uh, he says, in the Cato 40 video, Jim Kiltz, who are, is known to probably many of our viewers, he said that the exciting thing about Cato is that, quote, their far out ideas eventually become mainstream. Uh, what is the proper strategic approach for Cato's research to be consistent with libertarian ideas, but still relevant enough to be politically realistic in the near term? Thanks, John. Hey, John, thanks for the question, especially uh, this is something that we've been talking about really over the last couple, couple of days, especially given the current political, you know, political climate. Um, 
you know, in the past, folks have said we want Cato to be, you know, since we do have this Im- adherence to, uh, to libertarian principle, um, and there are things on which we don't think that, uh, that individuals should compromise in ceding power to the state, um, that, um, you know, the, the Institute is sought to be, you know, as radical as it can be while still being relevant and still being in the debate. And uh, I think that's, you know, an, an interesting way to look at things. Um, and I think to a large extent it's true, but I think using words like radical can give people the wrong idea. I had a lunch today with, with one of our sponsors who mentioned how the word libertarianism um, can be taken as being extreme. And I explained that, again, going back to the Constitution really being a manifestation of a libertarian philosophy and um, I think many elements of libertarian philosophy being, you know, really, really mainstream, uh, you know, I don't think that, I think that's necessarily a, a misperception. Um, but I've really thought of the Institute, particularly in an environment where we see political tribalism kind of taken to extremes and the partisan divide being so strong, um, Cato really being the antidote to some of that because we do have a philosophy where we have areas of agreement, even if we're considering ourselves to be radicals, we have areas of agreement and disagreement with everyone across the entire political spectrum. And that gives us the ability to engage constructively with them. And I think, therefore, being um, you know, a pretty unique and impactful organization that can bridge some of the partisan gap that we're experiencing now. And um, I think that's one of the ways we should be viewing, uh, viewing our role. And it brings us really as far into the mainstream as you can, recogn- you know, making the argument to, uh, to both sides that we have a consistent philosophy, uh, you know, liberty-focused philosophy, um, that you know, when we do talk about the practical outcomes of, of, uh, of living by that philosophy, um, it produces you know, tremendous outcomes. Uh, how do you think about Cato's engagement with Congress uh, and politicians in general? Uh, there's certainly no shortage of times when Cato's been cited by politicians on both sides for uh, often partisan purposes. We have to admit that. In fact, we have a, a sort of a supercut here of some times that when politicians have, again, often for partisan purposes, used Cato research to advance their own ideas. We have had uh, liberals and conservatives who have said this is a really scary deal. The Cato Institute has said this is a violation of American sovereignty, that we should not adopt it as a country. Patrick Eddington writes for Cato. Cato's been another group that's been good supporter of privacy. Yes, but the interesting thing is Cato looked at all the candidates, Republican and Democrat, and said, who's most likely to take us back to war in the Middle East? And actually, it's Hillary Clinton, with Rubio being a close second. And today, as, as Cato very nicely is celebrating the Historic Immigration and Nationality Act, you know, let's, let's look at this immigration debate as something that uh, is good for our country. Thank you, Chris, and thanks to Cato for uh keeping this debate going, uh, I, I, and, and you're very generous. I do have one quibble with the introduction. That's not really quibble, but I, I, you know, I've been doing this for a while, and at some point I'll stop doing it. And I am hoping once before I retire to be introduced with further ado. <laughs> In the book, I cite an interview with Edward Crane, the founder of the Libertarian Cato Institute, and he said, Ralph, I'm against all corporate subsidies, I'm against unconstitutional wars. 
I'm against the liberty restrictions of the Patriot Act, and I'm against the Federal Reserve running amok. And I said, Ed, that's... Right, that uh, closing with Ralph Nader, who sat where you were sitting when I uh, chatted with him a uh, while back. It's somebody who uh, represents a lot of people in Washington who uh, have strong opinions about things. There's almost always some area where uh, Cato is likely to agree with them very strongly, and we're willing to have those are those areas of overlap no matter where somebody is on the on the political spectrum look that was a great video montage because it really illustrates what i was trying to articulate in my last answer that um, you know we're a unique organization we really can um i think by um finding those you know exploiting those areas of common ground and trying to broaden them and trying to persuade other people where their philosophy is inconsistent, you know, compared to uh, to our own. I think that can be very powerful. Um, it really, to me, is what, what Cato is all about. I get uh, in debates sometimes with sponsors who, you know, it's natural. I mean, when I joined Cato, when I joined Cato as a sponsor, I certainly didn't agree with uh, Cato's perspective in all the policy areas. Um, and I sometimes get in debates or discussions with sponsors who might dissent from our point of view in, in one issue area or another. And, you know, what I try to, uh, the message I try to give is those, those differences should be celebrated. They shouldn't be uh, taken as areas of disagreement that um, 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 should uh, um, um, impact uh, your relationship with, with Cato. Rather, they're what makes Cato effective. Um, they're the things that, um, you know, while not all of our sponsors agree with our standpoint and stance in every issue area, they all agree with uh, in the philosophy of limited, liberty, individual liberty and limited government. And I don't think there's any more powerful and consistent and principled um, voice for those values than, than Cato. And um, the fact that we do have areas of disagreement um, is what makes us able to to engage um, across the across the spectrum uh, and I know you like uh, succinct answers and I'm I'm not great at giving them but you know a fantastic example is the work Brink Lindsay's been doing you know Brink has identified areas where regulation what he has coined he's coined the term regressive regulation there are areas of regulation where the economic impact is regressive it falls disproportionately on lower and middle income people impacts uh, their economic mobility and exacerbates income inequality. And he has done, um, I think, a fantastic job waking, awakening people, uh, you know, not just um, free market advocates who would already agree with our point of view in these areas, but uh, assembling more of a coalition of center-left people who are, are recognizing the impact that things like occupational licensing, uh, zoning regulation, and uh, and similar regulations have on uh, on the less fortunate. And uh, you know, I think if you think back to the 1970s, which was the greatest spasm of deregulation um, in my lifetime, it was a time when you had conservatives who had uh, you know a, a, an inherent um, bias against regulation, but then you had people on the left like Ralph Nader and like Ted Kennedy, Ted Kennedy waking right. up to the fact that. Uh, what uh, regulation was doing to consumers, and that's really what uh, what sparked 
the uh, the deregulation in transportation. That, in my view, every time I get on a plane and pay the same amount of nominal dollars I did 30 years ago, uh, still paying dividends for us. This is going to be our last question. This is from Brian. Uh, what are your goals for Cato in the coming years? And if you wouldn't mind broadening it just a little bit, what are some issue areas where you see uh, the potential to really move the ball forward? Brian, thanks a lot. Um, that's a great question. And um, again, feeds into the dis internal discussions that we've been having. Um, I really uh, think that Cato has had tremendous impact on the national debate and the terms of debate. Um, but I think that um, what I've been encouraging people internally uh, to do is to uh, make sure that we all have a theory for how our activity and our output and our scholarship and the messages that we're propagating through all of the technological channels at our disposal, that there's a real linkage between um, that activity and that messaging and an impact. And to think a little bit more deeply about, you know, the process of how, you know, social change takes place and policy change takes place. So to have the focus of our staff um, not be on their output, but rather, you know, the impact that that's ultimately having. So to think about it, you know, a little bit, little bit more strategically. Um, I think, you know, when I focus on issue areas and, and really reflect, I try to think about, um, um, you know, what matters the most for, uh, for future generations. And I think that's really why a lot of us are in this business and why so many people support Cato, because um, we know how blessed we are to uh, have lived in a reasonably free country and we want to preserve um, those opportunities for, for our children and grandchildren. I mean, there's kind of a moral imperative there. Um, and uh, I think that one of the oppor current opportunities is really moving things um, you know, on the regulatory front. I meet so many great entrepreneurs who support Cato and tell me you know, a really sobering story about, you know, hey, I built a great company 20 or 30 years ago and I could never do that today. And to me, you know, that's a moral statement. That's saying that we're going to deny future generations the same opportunities that our generation had. And um, regulation is a big part of that. And uh, the fiscal situation is a big part of that. Um, and also, uh, um, you know, the defense of civil liberties, where Cato is sometimes, uh, you know, a lone voice. We want to give people the opportunity to, uh, to live their own lives, have control over their, over their, their, their lives. And uh, that's what we know generates the, uh, the best outcomes and the most fulfillment for for uh, for humans, and I think uh, so many of us have have uh, enjoyed the benefits of living in a reasonably free country, and and shame on us if we uh, don't uh, hand off to our children and grandchildren a country that uh, is as free or more free than the one that um, you know our our parents and grandparents handed handed off to us. All right, that will be all the time we have for tonight. But thank you, Peter, for. Uh, Staying late uh, this evening. It's a pleasure, Caleb. Chat. But also, before we we leave, I'd like to just say thanks again to our to our sponsors for uh, for making our uh, our work possible and for having that same passion that we have for uh, you know preserving liberty for uh, for the generations that come after us. All right. Uh, before we sign off, we'd like to show you uh, a quick video we've put together that tells part of the story of the Cato Institute's uh, forty years. 
uh, on Earth. And um, please enjoy as we look forward to hosting our next e-briefing in August. And thank you again for your support of the Cato Institute, which makes our work possible, uh, defending individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. Thanks. When the Cato Institute launched, the climate for liberty was harsher than it is today. It was 1977. Communists controlled a third of the world. In the United States, the American people were still hurting from the lasting effects of Vietnam, wage and price controls, Watergate, and stagflation. Cato's purpose is to put proposals into the national policy debate that are consistent with individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Ideological battle lines appeared to leave little room for a third option. Even the word libertarian was itself poorly understood. Ideas like ending the Federal Reserve or the war on drugs were considered extreme. In fact, when I was first working, I was criticized by some people for being a follower. And I can remember that. And I say, how can they criticize you for liking a limited government, economic freedom, and individual liberty? And he said, oh, they have some far out ideas. And I think that's one of the exciting things about Cato. Their far out ideas become mainstream because uh, they're so intellectually uh, powerful. In the early 70s, uh, libertarianism was, uh, I don't know, it was a crackpot idea. And uh, people actually didn't admit that they were a libertarian. Shortly after its founding in San Francisco, the Cato Institute moved to Washington, D.C. Before Cato came to town, there was no libertarian presence in Washington. When I came for an interview, we hadn't moved into the Waterston House yet, which was our first headquarters on 2nd Street. And it was a little law office that had a back room without any shades on the window, and it had an uh, iron post bed there with a mattress that was, uh, the stuffing was coming out of it, and that was the interview. But unlike so many interest groups in our nation's capital, Cato exists not to advocate for government-directed protection or giveaways. Quite the opposite. We think the essence of America is a respect for the dignity of individual human life. And we think public policy should um, reflect that dignity and enhance it. And from our perspective, that means um, less government control over your life. Cato works to develop policy options that expand what we call civil society, the voluntary interaction of individuals, associations, religious groups, businesses. And, um, and try to limit political society, which uh, uh, of necessity is coercive. Cato's work has always focused on making sure that ideas to protect and preserve human freedom have a place in the discussion, whether the powers that be like it or not. Cato has been willing to criticize both parties' office holders when they've tried to take the country in a direction that favors expedience over freedom. Because of Ed Crane's talent and persistence, the Cato Institute is known and respected for its nonpartisan views. Unfortunately, most think tanks get semi-captured in the political process. It's a huge temptation because you think you're having impact, but then your ideas are no longer objective. So I think the objectivity and, and the adherence to our values, no matter what the political winds are blowing, is very unique. We come down sometimes in the liberal camp and sometimes in the conservative camp. That prevents us from being inside Washingtonians. We are actually outside Washingtonians, even though we are geographically located within the city. 
Democrats and Republicans are probably going to rarely uh, agree with Cato's policy positions, but they would be very hard put to find anything wrong in the data that Cato builds its conclusions on. It's the, it's the, the digging for facts and the digging for facts without prejudice, no alternative facts. Many people don't realize how broad Cato is in its defense of liberty and wants to box it in as if it's a right-of-center libertarian think tank when that is not all the case. Cato is on Team Liberty. It's not on Team Republican. It's not on Team Democrat. But Cato is also known for being open to supporting a broad range of people who intersect with the Institute for different parts of its core values and mission. Not beholden to politicians, political parties, or government funding, the Cato Institute makes the promotion of distinctly libertarian public policy solutions its fundamental purpose. I think the Cato Institute really deserves a lot of credit for its leadership in a, a couple of areas, one of which I, in which I was very involved, uh, and that is uh, Social Security privatization. Transforming Social Security from an eventually insolvent government program to a system of privately owned retirement accounts. That we took from nowhere, no one had thought of this idea, and got as far as the President of the United States second term agenda. Cato's work on the war on drugs I think has been very important because they've been able to elevate the costs of the war on drugs alongside of thinking about whatever benefits someone might think. In 1988, I wrote an article in the New York Times called Let's Quit the Drug War. Um, it was shortly followed, and I can't say because of, but it was shortly followed by the economist endorsing legalization, the mayor of Baltimore endorsing legalization, congressional hearings being held on the topic. But the real case in, in terms of policy and analysis was not being made by very many people. Mr. Niskanen, is it protectionism of the rankest form? Yes, it's the worst trade bill that I have seen in many years. It will harm American consumers, it will harm American exporters, it will hurt our foreign affairs with some very important allies, it will probably destroy the prospects for a new trade round, it will hurt American bankers who have foreign loans. Uh, there isn't a good thing to be said about it. It is an organization that has always maintained that uh, free trade is, is, in, is part of human dignity and human experience, uh, whereas organizations always thought of it purely as an economic means. Cato sees it as actually human flourishing. And there aren't a lot of groups that still focus on trade. It truly is wonderful to have, and, and necessary, to have an ally such as Cato, which will honestly live up to that statement attributed to Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Here is an institute that is willing to stand up for uh for the right of, in, of every individual to say and do whatever he wants and do his own thing. Uh, there are, it, it sounds very banal, uh, it, uh, and it should be banal, but it's, unfortunately it's not that uh, simple. Cato is a great voice for liberty. It stands for free people and free speech, things which it just must have for a strong democracy. America's treasured constitution needs to be vigorously defended. An intrusive, overweening government and narrowly focused interest groups have done enormous damage to the struggle for a free society. Throughout its decades-long effort to promote the ideas that animate our founding document, 
Cato has printed more than six million pocket constitutions, including editions in Spanish and Arabic. The founding era of the United States left behind a fragile and decidedly imperfect civil society, but the task of clarifying and promoting the ideas that help freedom take root is the purpose of the Cato Institute. There are many organizations and individuals that have played important roles in mainstreaming libertarianism, but uh, for that achievement, I always count Cato as the MVP. Cato really is the mothership. Cato is the preeminent forerunner uh, advancing liberty in the face of overwhelming government juggernaut. The fact that they go to lunch and come back and continue this, I think, is a real uh, testament to their, their patience and truly their courage to continue plugging along in the face of, of so much difficulty and adversity when it comes to fighting for liberty government. So Cato is the keeper of the light. Cato sticks to its guns uh, better than anyone else. The power of changing where policy is headed in, uh, in this government uh, is a huge opportunity for Cato. So it's not when we made the, the greatest impact, it's we are going to make the greatest impact as we move forward. I'm very proud to be associated with the Cato Institute. I'm, I, uh, it's an organization that has a high level of integrity, with a high level of commitment to ideas with which, with which I agree, and I think it is making a difference against some tough odds. It is a moral imperative that we follow this example, reclaim our heritage as a free people, and reclaim our right to live in a just society. With Cato's track record over these past 40 years and the outlook for liberty continuing to improve, the Cato Institute will continue to be the foremost champion for human liberty.